The spleen has long been considered a mysterious organ since classical times. The first conceptions of the function of the spleen was that it was a site of removal of black collar, one of the four humors Hippocrates believed regulated homeostasis. This belief influenced the language of Old English, where a splenetic person described someone in that time who was hot-tempered or hasty in judgment. Today, your patient has splenomegaly, and you are the doctor. Welcome to The Internet Work, a podcast written by internal medicine residents meant to serve you better on the wards and on call. Today's episode is entitled Red Pulp, White Pulp, An Approach to Splenomegaly. All right, time for a minute physiology. The spleen is the largest lymphatic organ of the human body, present in the posterior left upper quadrant of the abdomen below the diaphragm and adjacent to the stomach, colon, and left kidney. The spleen has two compartments, red pulp and white pulp, which allow it to perform its two primary functions. Hematologic, whereby it removes antibody-coated cells, filters red blood cells, and stores one-third of the intravascular platelet pool, and immunologic, whereby T and B lymphocytes and macrophages recognize foreign particles, microorganisms, and orchestrate primary immune responses. The possible etiologies of splenomegaly are vast, but can be organized into six primary categories, congestive, infectious, hematologic, neoplastic, immunologic, and infiltrative. Congestive causes include patients with portal hypertension from cirrhosis, thrombosis of the hepatic or splanchnic veins, and congestive heart failure. Infectious causes include viral pathogens like the classically taught infectious mononucleosis from Epstein-Barr virus, or EBV, HIV, bacterial infections such as Salmonella, Brucella, and tuberculosis, parasitic infections such as malaria and visceral leishmaniasis, and fungal infections such as histoplasmosis and blastomycosis. Hematologic causes include thalassemia, sickle cell disease, and hemolytic anemias. Note that splenomegaly usually occurs in patients with sickle cell disease before they autosplenectomize from recurrent splenic infarcts. Neoplastic etiologies include lymphomas or leukemias, myeloproliferative neoplasms, plasma cell dyscrasias, and metastases from solid tumors. In fact, splenomegaly is a cardinal feature of myelofibrosis and is brought on by compensatory extramedullary hematopoiesis. Inflammatory causes include collagen vascular diseases like Felty syndrome, which refers to the triad of rheumatoid arthritis, neutropenia, and splenomegaly, systemic lupus erythematosus, sarcoidosis, and immunodeficiencies. Infiltrative causes include storage diseases like Gaucher's disease, where the accumulation of lipid glucocerebroside in macrophages results in splenomegaly from splenic lipid infiltration. Now, how do we define massive splenomegaly? Clinically, this is defined as the spleen crossing the midline and radiologically as a spleen larger than 20 centimeters. Etiology of massive splenomegaly includes thalassemia major, myeloproliferative neoplasms, lymphomas or chronic lymphoid neoplasms, visceral leishmaniasis, Gaucher disease, AIDS with mycobacterium avian complex infection, cirrhosis with portal hypertension, and rarely acute leukemias. 
let's go see our patient. When should you suspect splenomegaly? The clinical assessment begins with a history in which you should be asking for symptoms of left upper quadrant fullness, early satiety secondary to compression of the stomach, and left upper quadrant pain, which could radiate to the left shoulder owing to irritation of the phrenic nerve through diaphragmatic compression from splenic infarct or rupture. Some patients may lack these symptoms depending on the extent of the splenomegaly. You should also make a detailed inquiry regarding systemic symptoms such as fever, night sweats, and weight loss, history of malignancy and travel, and focal infectious symptoms that may suggest underlying hematologic, malignant, infectious, or inflammatory disease. Moving on to our physical exam. First, begin with inspection. You want to look in the left upper quadrant where, if the patient has massive splenomegaly, you might see a bulging mass emerging under the left costal margin and descending with inspiration. Following inspection, you will then proceed with percussion and then palpation. There are two approaches to percussing for splenomegaly. First, you can percuss trobe space, the area between the sixth rib, left costal margin, and anterior axillary line from its medial to lateral margins while the patient breathes normally. Splenomegaly is suggested when the percussion note is dull. Castell's sign can also be elicited by percussing at the level of Castell's point, which is the junction between the lowest intercostal space and the anterior axillary line in both expiration and full inspiration. Splenomegaly is present if percussion is dull or becomes dull on full inspiration. Since a normal-sized spleen almost lies entirely within the ribcage, it cannot normally be palpated. However, as it enlarges, its anterior pole descends below the ribcage and across the abdomen toward the right iliac fossa. Relaxation of the abdominal wall is critical, so you can ask the patient to have their knees flexed while in the supine position. A one-handed technique can be employed by starting from the right iliac fossa toward the left costal margin. Ask the patient to breathe in and out through their mouth. With each expiration, move your hand one or two centimeter closer to the left costal margin and feel for the anterior pole of the spleen. If the spleen is not palpable and you have a high index of suspicion, roll the patient onto the right lateral decubitus position and palpate again. It is important to note that splenomegaly can be an incidental finding on physical exam as studies have shown that spleens can be palpable in less than 3% of healthy adults. Report your patient's splenomegaly using the number of centimeters that it extends below the left costal margin during inspiration. Include in your physical exam as well an assessment of possible underlying illnesses. For instance, look for signs of hematologic disease such as petechiae or diffuse lymphadenopathy, abnormal mucosal bleeding or pallor, liver disease such as jaundice, ascites, or spider angiomas, and rheumatologic disease with a full joint exam and skin exam for rashes. On to our workup. Imaging studies should be sought to confirm your bedside assessment, with ultrasound being a validated modality to assess for splenomegaly and splenic texture, and CT or MRI as options, particularly if you suspect an infiltrative focal splenic lesion such as splenic abscess or infarct. On ultrasound, a spleen length of 12 centimeters is generally considered the upper limit of normal. Serial imaging studies for splenic size may be helpful to monitor disease activity of myeloproliferative neoplasms like myelofibrosis. Laboratory studies that may be of use include a complete blood count and smear, 
liver enzymes and liver function testing, viral serologies, and a monospot. Splenomegaly may lead to hypersplenism, which presents with at least one of anemia, leukopenia, and or thrombocytopenia. Cytopenias can also be related to underlying liver disease, hemolytic anemias, and rheumatologic diseases. The smear can show spherocytes suggestive of autoimmune hemolytic anemia or teardrop cells suggestive of myelofibrosis. A chest x-ray can be helpful to see if there are any left-sided pleural effusions that are associated with a splenic abscess. Bone marrow aspiration and biopsies would be indicated if you are suspecting a myeloproliferative neoplasm, leukemia, or lymphoma based on abnormalities in the CBC or blood smear. Now, all patients with splenomegaly are at increased risk of splenic rupture, so you should provide counseling on the importance of avoiding abdominal trauma. Treatment for splenomegaly depends on the underlying cause. For instance, treat the infections if there is one that was found on your workup. Chemotherapy or immunotherapy would be indicated in the case of underlying malignancy. In the case of myelofibrosis, splenomegaly might be treated with a JAK inhibitor. Splenectomy is rarely indicated due to bleeding risk of the procedure and the risk of overwhelming infection with encapsulated organisms including haemophilus influenza, streptococcus pneumonia, and Neisseria meningitides post-splenectomy. However, it can be indicated in cases of hemolytic anemias, splenic rupture, splenic marginal zone lymphomas, and splenic abscesses. It can also be considered in cases of myelofibrosis with massive symptomatic splenomegaly in patients who are not candidates for JAK inhibition or palliative splenic irradiation. Other interventional options for patients with debilitating symptomatic splenomegaly who are non-surgical candidates include splenic irradiation and partial splenic artery embolization. The primary limitation of partial splenic artery embolization is post-embolization syndrome, characterized by severe left upper quadrant pain, often requiring intravenous pain control, hydration, and hospitalization. This complication can occur in up to 75% of treated patients. Splenic irradiation can be complicated by significant myelosuppression and severe GI toxicity, including nausea and diarrhea. Liver transplantation should be considered in eligible patients with cirrhosis. Time for a Medicine Minute. In the controlled myelofibrosis study with oral JAK inhibitor treatment 2 or COMFORT 2, a randomized phase 3 trial compared ruxolimnib with the best available therapy in 219 patients with primary myelofibrosis. In this study, a total of 28% of the patients in the ruxolitinib group had at least a 35% reduction in spleen volume at week 48, as compared with 0% in the group receiving the best available therapy. The patients in the ruxolitinib group also had significant improvement in overall quality of life measures and a reduction in symptoms associated with myelofibrosis. Thank you for listening to this episode entitled Red Pulp, White Pulp, An Approach to Splenomegaly. This episode was written by Dr. Owen Luo, internal medicine resident, and Dr. Jia Li, Lili Liu, internal medicine resident, and reviewed by Dr. Giselle Poprati, hematologist, and Dr. Samuel Mamin, general internist. This episode was recorded and produced by Allison Lai. The Internet Work series was created by Allison Lai and is executively produced by Allison Lai, Leah Karianopoulos, and Zara Morali. 
theme song by Lakshan Fazant the Mohan. As always, we have an associated infographic on our website at www.theinternetwork.com. Thank you for listening. We hope to see you again soon.